Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. This week, we're looking back at the first UBS Future Now APAC conference, which took place in Hong Kong last month. Future Now brought together more than 800 investors, industry experts and founders, UBS specialists and companies from across the region to explore the trends that matter both today and in the years to come. During the two-day event, participants were invited to join keynote sessions and panels on a variety of topics, including the exponential rise of generative AI and the associated risks, the effects of deglobalization on the manufacturing of semiconductors, and the impact of green tech in helping us tackle decarbonisation and other key environmental themes. We are going to hear on the programme from one of the keynote addresses. Renowned futurist Azim Azhar delivered a session entitled Four Key Themes for the Exponential Age. Azhar, as you might be aware, is the creator of the acclaimed Exponential View newsletter and is the international best-selling author of Exponential, Order and Chaos in an Age of Accelerating Technology, which is published by Penguin. So settle in and enjoy hearing from Azim now on the challenges and opportunities held by the exponential age. Here is what he had to say in his address. My work is built around one key idea, and that key idea is that we're going through an economic and industrial transition that is a once-in-a-century perhaps once in a 150-year transition, the move from a set of technology platforms we understood really well, uh, the internal combustion engine, fossil-powered electricity and the telephone, to a new class of technology platforms of which one is AI. And that transition is the lens that I use to try to explain what is going on uh, right now, because things are changing very, very quickly. I mean, we're all familiar with this particular data set, which is just the 14 years between 2009, when the largest companies in America were all essentially oil companies designed to power petrol engines and diesel engines, to 2023, where The largest companies are essentially all based around computing and Tesla being the one sort of representative of the new car industry, not even the old car industry. We're also familiar with the idea that products, consumer products, distribute and disperse much, much faster than previously. You know, TikTok setting a a record for a company, a product getting to a billion users far faster than things like like Facebook or uh, WhatsApp. And it's quite hard to make sense of even the speed of technical change. So about a year and a half ago, Mark Zuckerberg renamed Facebook to Meta, and he presented this as the future of the computer industry, this sort of blocky human in front of the Eiffel Tower. And just last week, we saw Apple demonstrating what this could actually look like. And just to bear in mind, that's only a 15-month period. And we're dealing with NVIDIA, which is now a trillion-dollar company. And the NVIDIA story is absolutely fascinating because I first bought NVIDIA stock back in about 2015. And by about 2017, I thought, I've done really well now. I'm going to sell my NVIDIA stock. And, of course, I think I may have been better off holding on to it. But the key thing here is that you've got 15 years of NVIDIA just sort of bumbling around as an interesting manufacturer of gaming processors to now seeing it as a sort of fundamental substrate for the future economy. 
And it's not just the tech industry. We keep underestimating the rate of change in other areas. So we know that we're going through a fundamental energy transition driven by renewables. And it's so hard for the forecasters to get these numbers right. This is the renewables capacity growth as estimated by the IEA. And their 2022 estimate, which came out in December, they had to revise about three weeks ago because they were, had undershot by 50%. So the question is, how do you make sense of this change? You know, I've talked about big, heavy things like solar farms, uh, the IEA data there, through to very, very virtual things like the metaverse, right? What is the connective tissue, the connective thread between them? And this is the idea of the exponential age, that there are now, we're in the midst of a technology transition that is based on four general purpose technologies, computing, biology, energy, and manufacturing. And the reason this is important is because general purpose technologies are the most disruptive type of innovation that you ever find in an economy because they can be applied in any sector, they can be applied at any point in the value chain. They are things that fundamentally drive down the costs of large parts of industrial and economic activity. And in my research, what I found was at this period of time, really starting in the late 1970s, but accelerating around 2010, these four families, these four technology platforms all had uh, one thing in common, which is that on a price performance basis, they were in an exponential phase where they were getting cheaper and cheaper every single year, at least 10 or 15% cheaper, which has an incredible impact on how widely they'll get used within the economy. So what's the impact of that downward trend in costs across those four key areas? Azim explained. When you turn that around and say, well, if these things are getting cheaper, what does that actually mean for how they're being used? We can go back, and 2012 is an anchor point that I use as the inflection point for a lot of these. This is the year where deep learning started to become valuable. It was the point at which we started to see the first renewable energy systems that could compete with fossil fuels on price. But in that decade, what we saw was this tremendous shift the proportion of cars that were sold in Norway that were electric vehicles increased by a factor of 30. The number of human genomes that were sequenced increased by a factor of 12. The amount of compute that was used in high-end AI models increased by a factor of 16,000. When you start to see this particular line, what you're seeing is an opportunity for massive value creation. This is my first computer. That is actually a photo of my first computer, which is sitting at my, my desk. And when I got it in 1981, I thought everyone had a computer. And actually, it just turned out that my friends and I were all massive geeks. And so we all had computers at the age of nine, but nobody else did, as you can see from the chart. We are at a point now where there are 25 billion or so connected devices on the internet. And what that does is that creates uh, this sort of fantastic economic opportunity. And that computation keeps getting cheaper. We're really, really familiar with, with Moore's law. Moore's law essentially described that every couple of years, roughly speaking, compute was getting about 50 to 60% cheaper. And so I've got a 100-year trend line here on the left-hand side, which just shows the price performance of computation improving dramatically. And then by about 2010, we start to see 
demands for machine learning and AI workloads. And those get driven on different processes called GPUs. And so this chart shows the GPU trend line. And please note that it's a logarithmic trend line. And what we see from predominantly NVIDIA is an exponential improvement in price performance for GPUs as well. And at the other end of the scale, we're seeing that renewables are going on their own exponential march. Solar pricing has declined by about between 15 and 20% per annum uh, for many, many decades. And renewables are now cheaper than uh, fossil fuels in any new power investment. And just take a look at the, the green line, which is photovoltaics, and you compare that to the black line, which is natural gas. And back in 2016 was when solar photovoltaic became cheaper than gas-fired electricity. And then going to the other end of the, the scale, looking at biological platforms, we've seen the cost for sequencing a human genome decline from $100 million to approaching $500 or less now. And the number of sequences that have been made uh, going past the billion uh, number. So about one in seven humans have, have had their genome sequenced. And this is not the only technology within the family of biology that is going on this exponential improvement. In the area of cell engineering and protein engineering, we're starting to see similar curves, things that are economically unsustainable today that are getting 40, 50, 60% cheaper every single year, so they will become economically viable very, very soon. And that has really significant impacts, uh, by the way, not just in healthcare, pharmaceuticals, and life sciences, but actually in industry. So one of the reasons the biological platform matters is that there's a whole series of products and chemicals that are produced by the traditional petrochemicals and materials industries that we should, over the next 5 to 15 years, be able to migrate over to biological platforms, which will be much less energy-intensive and much more sustainable. Next, Azim Zar went on to outline four key areas in which we're seeing rapid movement within the framework he's already outlined. Azim began by explaining how he's chronicled these trends. I spend a lot of time talking to investors and executives and scientists, mostly in Europe and, and the US, and I want to just bring out sort of four themes that I have noticed from that perspective. And this year I've spent about a week in Silicon Valley and I spoke to um, some of the top venture capitalists and the founders of all of the big AI labs as well. So let's just try to distill these four. The first is that there is definitely an acceleration. I mean, the theme of my book is that this is accelerating. And if you remember the graph I showed of TikTok and the time it took for TikTok to get to a billion users, well, ChatGPT is now forcing me in PowerPoint to just use the vertical line because it's growing so, so quickly. And the speed of change is now measured in weeks. So we've got these generative AI models like ChatGPT, and GPT-4 is the the absolute sort of high watermark for the performance of these models. And on this chart, it's shown at a level of 100. Open source models are catching up quite quickly. The best open source model is at about 90% of GPT-4's level, costing actually only a few million dollars to train. But the key thing to note is that the first version called Llama was only released on the 24th of February this year. And within six weeks, we'd gone from 69% to 91%. And we're seeing that speed of innovation right across this sector in particular. 
The next thing that has really started to be a consistent theme has been a really strong belief that these AI tools are going to have a rapid productivity impact. And the impact is going to be significant because this is a general purpose technology. And I think it's important to understand what a general purpose technology is. It's something that supports most industries, that can create new industries, that has a cheap key input, that develops and relies on new infrastructures and has many, many second order effects. And so, you know, I have things like the steam engine and the internal combustion engine. And you think about how much they reframed uh, the global economy. I mean, steam powered ships introduced globalization to the late 18th century through to the 19th century pattern of, of globalization. And so when I look at artificial intelligence, I start to see a technology that has the similar hallmarks of a general purpose technology, where the cheap key input is that very, very cheap computation that we looked at earlier. The infrastructures are emerging as foundation models that live within data centers. And the second order effects are a bit early to see, but we can talk about a couple in the next minute or two, but multiple second order effects. One of those will be the impact on the labour market. And we're starting to see the first academic studies on how things like GPT-4 and ChatGPT are having actual effects within the workforce. My buddy Eric Brynjolfsson is a professor at Stanford, and he had been running a piece of research over two or three years looking at generative AI systems in a particular customer service application. Now, two or three years, that means he was looking at very, very early generative AI models, not GPT-4, which is the state of the art. Many, many interesting results. I'll just highlight one, which is that when they looked at these customer service agents, they found that those who were supported by generative AI got six months' worth of experience in just two months. So you had that period of time compression. And other studies that have looked at the impact of early versions of these tools in white-collar work have come to similar types of conclusions. There's an MIT study which showed that if you augmented knowledge workers with, with a large language model, a generative AI system, you would roughly halve the time it would take for them to complete a task but the task quality would increase by about 10%. So you get better quality output much more quickly. There was another effect. Another effect was that if you looked at how employees using generative AI systems performed, those in the bottom seven deciles, so not your top 30% best performers, but the bottom seven deciles, saw their performance raise to roughly the level of a top quartile performer. So if you're an employer, that's quite good news because your bottom three quarters are now as good as your top quarter. If you're in the top quarter, it's not such great news because suddenly there's a lot more competition for that end of quarter bonus. These tools are also exposing high earners in advanced economies. So a survey from Elundu, who's a, an economist, looked at you know, where they thought generative AI systems would have a biggest impact on the tasks that workers were undertaking. And the key was it was roughly at the 85 to $100,000 
annual wage in the, in the US, which was right at the median wage of the degree-educated worker in the US. And that's got all sorts of really interesting implications and some really interesting implications, of course, in terms of whatever political issues emerge. Because, you know, historically, when new technologies have come out, there has always been a clash between the firm and the worker, right? Whether this was the spinning jenny and garment technologies in in England in the 18th and 19th century, whether it was mechanization of the production line when Henry Ford was building out Ford at the turn of the 20th century. When productivity technologies get introduced by firms, workers will often push back. And for the first time, the workers will be pushing back won't be factory workers. It's going to be, you know, people at desks. And there was another really fascinating result. When ChatGPT was released, the Italian privacy regulator was very quick to ban it. Now, they've since been able to reverse the ban because ChatGPT, OpenAI, has changed certain processes. But it gave us a controlled experiment to see whether there was a productivity impact within Italy. ChatGPT is this very general tool, but actually it's quite helpful if you're a software developer, because one of the things it can do, amongst all the other things it can do, is it can generate software code. And so at this point, the 1st of April, the Italian regulator bans ChatGPT. The y-axis, the blue line, is, is showing GitHub activity, which is a proxy for developer productivity. And what you see is that the day after the the ban, there's a 50% productivity decline amongst Italian developers who use GitHub. And then they they managed to figure out how to use VPNs to get around the ban, and their productivity goes back up. And it's a small experiment. We have to understand that we're three months into this. This is a small sample. But all of these surveys are pointing to the same type of conclusion, which is productivity enhancements for white-collar work. Next up, Azim Azar moved on to the third key area. The next theme that has emerged is one that I call catalytic government. So for the last 60 years, led by the US and the UK, Western governments have really taken a dim view on industrial policy, on uh, setting the direction for the market. The view has been let the market figure out what investments should be made because they will do that much, much more efficiently. And, you know, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, you know, the two leaders who who really drove that. Well, that moment has now come to an end and we have a new framing that I call catalytic government. And what has driven it has been those technology cost curves that I presented at the start. The fact that the economy is dramatically reconfiguring has created this political impetus for countries that have normally been quite hands-off to steer their economies. And so in the US, you have the CHIPS Act and the IRA, and it has triggered this incredible investment in manufacturing. And you can just see this is when the CHIPS Act was announced and the red line, which is manufacturing investments in computing, electrical, and electronic factories. And... You know, it's remarkable for Europe and the US to actually have a semiconductor strategy. I mean, I couldn't have been having this conversation 10 years ago and saying, well, America will have a semiconductor strategy. It didn't make sense. China had a semiconductor strategy. They initiated it in 2014. But now we're starting to see a much, much greater desire 
but from Western governments and as a consequent Western businesses to work with their governments alongside this new industrial policy. And at the same time, the state, those, you know, the US government and within the EU and the UK is turning its eye on innovation within the technology sector. The tech sector had been highly under-regulated and unregulated. And now, right across the board, we're seeing much, much more activist view of whether there need to be guardrails around this. And one great example is what's happening within the crypto market. As regulators come in and they start to say, we're going to look at these firms' behaviors, investor appetite has disappeared. And we're seeing this in in artificial intelligence as well. So within Europe and the US, increasing interest in regulating AI. And in September, uh, there's going to be an international summit in the UK to look at questions of AI safety. And this is a kind of activist European US government behavior that we haven't seen probably since the 1970s. So the final thing that that has come out has been what I describe as the spiky world, which is how do we contend with decoupling? And within my world, something that has been a bit totemic has been Sequoia Capital, which is the most successful venture capital firm in history, splitting into three different businesses, independent businesses, one for India, one for China, and one for the US and Europe. And Sequoia has made various public statements about this, but the undercurrent is that it's more complex to try to run a single global firm in the innovation space, given all the concerns that limited partners have, that entrepreneurs have, that other partners have, than it used to be. And so it now makes sense to split this business. And when I look at that, what this sort of global competition looks like, we see a a mixed picture. So China is clearly racing ahead in some categories, advanced materials, renewable storage, electric vehicles. It's not just about having a big domestic market. It it is also about having manufacturing capability and expertise. And definitely a message that comes out in European automakers and American automakers is, can they actually build a car without China, without China's metals processing without China's cathodes and batteries and so on. And the thing that has really surprised European auto manufacturers is how rapidly China has been able to become a significant auto exporter. And in fact, just this last couple of weeks, first quarter of this year, China became the world's largest exporter of cars. And that's driven by that technology transition and that cost curve that I talked about right at the beginning. My view on the state of AI and advanced computing development is that the US has really, really, really significant advantages. It's not just about the advantages that it has on having access to the advanced compute. It's also about research quality. And that, I think, is driven by a much, much longer standing, uh, more well-established research in computer science. And so when I assess where is China on compute and AI, where is Europe on compute and AI compared to the US, I mean, I think the US is further ahead in 2023 than it was three or four years ago. And I don't believe in the thesis that its lead in this field is threatened by any other, any other region.
In conclusion, Azim Azar recapped the scenario facing us as he sees it. Here he is. This transition to the exponential age is going to be very fast and it's going to be cross-sectoral. It's likely to accelerate, you know, subject to other factors that might, might slow the, things down. But one thing I would note is that every time in the last two or three years we've had an exogenous shock to the global economy, it's sped up the transition. So COVID sped up the digital transition. It sped up the AI transition. It sped up the renewables transition. The war in Ukraine sped up the renewables transition in Europe. It sped up investments in drones and in AI and in compute. So I don't see many shocks that would slow this down based on, on the last few years. Western governments have become so much more active in signaling direction, and that is leading to this very spiky world of techno-geopolitics. And that's Azim Azar bringing us to the end of this special edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle Radio. Don't forget that Azim's excellent book, Exponential, Ordering Chaos in an Age of Accelerating Technology, is available now, published by Penguin. You can listen again and explore more about this programme at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club and subscribe to our magazine. You can also follow this programme wherever you get your podcasts. You can discover more and find out how UBS can help you at ubs.com. This is The Bulletin with UBS. On Monocle Radio, I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.